Our Father in heaven, would you help us now that we may listen and learn? And would your spirit work as I teach that the result of this time together would be that each one would leave from this place more confident in your word and more assured of your saving and freeing grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to turn to the book of John, which would have been our sermon for this morning, but I think in the Lord's providence, with the storm, we all enjoyed having the special worship service this morning with all of the music and heard many, many people say, let's do that again. So that seems like a good idea. And so instead of John 8 this morning, you have it this evening. And I think you may find that hopefully this is helpful and yet it perhaps fits better here than it would have in the service this morning. Follow along as I read... John 7:53 which is tucked in there right before the beginning of John 8 this familiar story They went each to his own house but Jesus went to the mount of olives Early in the morning he came again to the temple all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst they said to him Teacher This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Little known fact, as far as I can remember, this text is the first sermon I ever preached when I was something in uh, college and preached this at the Holland City Rescue Mission to probably 15 or 20 men sitting there and worked feverishly and was feeling like I was, could have been at the Olympics of preaching. I was so excited to just be preaching a sermon and chose this text to preach some however many, over 20 years ago. And later, the next week, my college pastor, who had kindly come out to hear me preach, said, let's get together for lunch and we'll talk about the sermon. So I was eager to hear. And I said, well, what'd you think? I think he said some some nice things and there were some really good things you did and I appreciate this and that. And then he sort of paused and he said, the next time you preach you might want to try preaching something that's in the Bible. Well, that was a bit jarring for me. What does he mean, preach something that's in the Bible? And so he showed me here what you can see in front of you, that there is in brackets in front of John chapter 8, the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7.53 through 
11. So how did we get to this point? That we have this famous section put off in brackets with that in all capital letters. And so that my college pastor would say, nice sermon, but that text isn't in the Bible. The first printed Greek New Testament was published in 1516. Remember the invention of the printing press? This is a big deal, and this was a landmark achievement. The first printed Greek New Testament. It was put together by a Dutch scholar you may have heard of named Erasmus. It was a monumental, significant feat of scholarship. His Greek New Testament, which subsequently has been referred to as the Textus Receptus, which is not a dinosaur, but it simply means the received text, became the basis for most Reformation-era translations. That's the 16th into the 17th century, including the King James Bible, which many of you would have grown up reading. And in fact, I grew up for many years reading the King James, and I love its language, and I love its history, and I've read through the Bible in the KJV many times. Since Erasmus, however... Scholars have found more ancient manuscripts based on better text traditions, and consequently, there are certain verses that you find in the King James that you will not find in almost any contemporary English translation, from the NASB to the NIV to the ESV. Some of the most famous examples are the ending of the Lord's Prayer, which we always say, for thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. That's, you turn to Matthew chapter 6, you won't see that in your Bible. The so-called Johannine comma, a famous Trinitarian verse in 1 John 5, 7. If you ever look there, it's severely truncated because scholars now believe that the best manuscripts do not include the entirety of that verse. You could look to the ending of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 16, and see that there are also footnotes and brackets there. Did Mark's gospel end at verse 8, or did it have a longer ending or a subsequent ending? And perhaps the most famous of the verses that you will not find, or you will find in brackets in a contemporary English translation, is this story, the woman caught in adultery. So is John 7:53 through John 8 and 11 an original part of John's gospel? Almost certainly the answer is no. While the story may very well be true, it has the ring of authenticity of something that may have happened, I would argue, and it's certainly not my argument alone, but that of the overwhelming majority of scholars that this text, though it may speak to true things about Jesus, was not originally a part of the inspired scriptures. Now, I could quote to you from numerous Bible scholars, conservative, evangelical, believing in the inerrancy of the Bible scholars who say this same thing, but let me just quote one. This is from D.A. Carson. He says in his commentary on John, and this is representative of many others, he says, despite the best efforts of Zane Hodges, that's a, another scholar who has argued that this is original. He says, despite the best efforts of Zane Hodges to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against him and modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote. 
So why have scholars almost universally concluded that this beloved story was not a part of John's original gospel? Let me just rattle through a number of reasons. One, it is absent from the best and the earliest Greek manuscripts. Two, it is missing from the earliest Syriac and Coptic gospels, among other ancient versions. So those were other languages in the ancient world. As Greek was translated into some of those languages, they don't have the story either. Three, the church fathers do not include the story. In fact, the earliest church fathers, in their commentaries or in their sermons on John's gospel, they go right from John 7.52 to then John 8.12. Fourth, no Eastern church father cites the passage before the 10th century. Five, when this is included in later manuscripts, it is often marked with some sort of asterisk in the margin, or it ends up being inserted in different places. And when you see texts in old manuscripts inserted sometimes here, sometimes in Luke, sometimes in another part of John, it tells you it's an unstable text tradition. People weren't sure where it went. What number are we on? Six or seven. The vocabulary and the constructions are not characteristic of the rest of John. And then a final reason that scholars doubt its originality is that the text flows very naturally from 752 to 812. If you look at 752, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Jesus is having this debate and they are having this division among themselves. And then we pick up in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And then verse 13, the Pharisees then rebuke him again. So the flow fits quite nicely even without this section here. Now, if that is the case, and I don't know if that's the answer you thought I would give or not, but bear with me. If that is the case... Does this mean that we can't trust our Bibles, the Bibles we have in front of us, the Bible we have in our pews, that there's sections of the Bible that aren't really in the Bible anymore? Well, far from it. In, in fact, I hope that in the next 30 minutes, you will be able to conclude just the opposite and have a greater confidence in the Bible that you have on your lap. If the best scholars... We're trying to hide things or refuse to acknowledge the evidence in front of them, then you would have reason to doubt. Then you would have reason to wonder, well, what else have I not been told? What other secrets are they trying to keep? But every Bible in every pew in this sanctuary will tell you in all capital letters that this story is not included in the earliest manuscripts. So no one is trying to hide anything. We don't believe that the Bible was given by some kind of mechanical dictation. As Muslims would believe, Allah speaking to Muhammad and just, just writing down. No, we believe that by a concursive operation, the Holy Spirit worked through the personalities of men to write down his word. Neither do we believe, as Mormons might, that the Bible was just found in golden plates somewhere in a, in a hillside or in a cave, and there it is. But we understand that as men moved along by the Holy Spirit, wrote down these things in the original writings, they were then copied and preserved and brought down to us. 
And there is a science which is called textual criticism. It's the science of trying to understand from the vast swath of manuscripts that we have at our disposal what the original text says. Now, you can't see this. It's far away. But here, this is a Greek New Testament. And you could look it up and you would see that, aha, it's all Greek to you. Well, it is. But in addition to the Greek, which would be a different unknown language to most people, you can see, and I know you can't see this at all, but on the bottom of the page, there is this elaborate scholarly apparatus, which looks like a different language all of its own. And you learn about this sort of thing in preparation for pastoral ministry and in seminary, and you learn that this very complicated apparatus is to show pastors and scholars and people who learn these things just what all of these manuscripts say. There are, we'll come back to this in a moment, thousands of biblical manuscripts. And so in a Greek New Testament like this, it would have a footnote and it would tell you if there is some variance if some manuscripts say one thing and some manuscripts say another. And you can look down and they have funny letters and codes and numbers and all of which you can look up and, and represent different manuscripts. And you can look up, this is from the fourth century or this is a papyrus or this was a document written in all capital letters or this one was in lowercase letters. This one comes from the east or from the west. And they tell you the sort of texts that support different readings. That's called the science of textual criticism. And there's nothing to be feared from it. In fact, it is one of the surest ways that we can have confidence that the Bible we have in front of us is better attested by far than any other ancient book. Let me take a step back and explain. Of all the bestsellers of the year 2006, probably the most unlikely was Bart Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. Maybe some of you have heard of Bart Ehrman or Ehrman. He's a professor, well-known professor at Chapel Hill, our very own North Carolina. His book was an unlikely bestseller because it's a book about textual criticism, and it sold, even in the first year or two, over 100,000 copies. Here's the gist of his book. Here's what he writes. Quote, not only do we not have the originals, speaking of the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, we don't have the first copies of the originals. What we have are copies made much later. And these copies differ from one another in so many places that we don't even know how many differences there are. Possibly, it is easiest to put it in comparative terms, there are more differences among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. We have only error-ridden copies, and the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals and different from them in thousands of ways. And that became a bestseller. What made his book so compelling is, one, that Ehrman really is a a scholar. He's not a crackpot. He's a legitimate scholar and he writes well at a popular level. And the other thing that made this book compelling was that Ehrman is a former fundamentalist, currently professor at UNC Chapel Hill. He claims to have had a born-again experience in high school and then he went to Moody and he went to Wheaton and then he went to Princeton. 
And he tells a story that at Princeton, he wrote a paper on the Gospel of Mark, the passage where it says in Mark 2.26, in the time of Abiathar the high priest. Well, he realized that the high priest at the time was not actually Abiathar, but it was Ahimelech. And it's not something that has eluded scholars. Every commentary you can read recognizes that. Well, for him, he says, whether he was sincere in this or not, that that was what blew up his bubble of believing in inerrancy. It said that in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and Ahimelech was the high priest, the Bible can't be trusted. Well, there's much that could be said about that particular verse. Personally, I think there's an easy explanation to understand that the whole era was known as the time of Abiathar, as a very noteworthy high priest, just as I have a book of famous speeches, and the speeches will come from the 1850s and the 1860s, and they're under the heading, The Age of Lincoln. Well, Lincoln wasn't president for all of that. He wasn't alive for all of that, but he sort of marked out the age, just like in the time of, in the age of Abiathar, the high priest. But be that as it may, Ehrman wrote a paper trying to deal with this apparent discrepancy, and he came to the conclusion that Mark made a mistake. And he says this opened the floodgates and eventually led Ehrman to believe that the Bible was a human book from beginning to end, and he has made quite a fine living writing book after book trying to debunk Orthodox Christianity. Ehrman can have a profound effect on people. This is an email that Lee Strobel, you may have read some of Lee Strobel's books on the case for Christ and various others. An email that he received says, quote, please help me. I have just read Bart Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus. I was raised in the church. I'm now 26 years old. This book has devastated my faith. I don't want to be kept in the dark. I want to know what is really going on in the Bible and what I should believe, even if it goes against what I believe since I was a little boy. Is Ehrman correct? So is he and other skeptical scholars like him correct in arguing that we have all of these manuscripts that differ in so many ways that the Bible that is sitting on your lap is riddled with errors and completely untrustworthy? Is that what we should conclude if we say, as I said earlier, that the woman caught in adultery is not a story originally found in John's gospel? Or do we have very good reasons to trust the text? Let me give you several reasons why we can trust the Greek New Testament from which our English translations are faithfully rendered. Here's the first reason and why John 8 should not cause you to doubt your Bibles. Number one, the abundance of manuscripts. Something that you don't think about. Where do, where do these books come from? How confident can we be? Well, if you compare the Bible to any other ancient book, you realize we have an embarrassment of riches. There are more manuscript witnesses to the text of the New Testament than to any other ancient Greek or Latin piece of literature. More than 5,700 Greek copies of part or all of the New Testament, more than 10,000 Latin copies, and another 10,000 to 15,000 manuscripts in other ancient languages. And on top of that, there are more than a million quotations of the New Testament to be found in the church fathers. By comparison, the average ancient Greek author has fewer than 20 copies of his works 
still in existence. And most of them come 500 or 1,000 years later. For example, Livy's History of Rome has only 35 manuscripts. Homer's Iliad and Odyssey combined have half of the New Testament witnesses, and Homer had an 800-year head start. The earliest manuscript evidence comes from within just decades of the completion of the New Testament and completed texts of the New Testament within just a couple of centuries. I have this book, Homer's Odyssey. I had to read this in Greek in college, not all of it, thankfully, but some of it. And here's what you read, just by comparison. The text of the Odyssey, almost all of us have to read something about the Odyssey in school at some point. Remember the Odyssey was Homer's epic, written sometime between 750 and 650 BC, 700 years before Christ. The oldest complete manuscript is from the 10th or the 11th century AD. So 1,800 years later is the first complete manuscript of Homer's Odyssey. Many fragments of papyrus have been found in Egypt, some of which contain long passages. The earliest of these date from the third century BC, but they have some striking variations, have additional lines mostly concocted from phrases and other passages. And so this introduction concludes, the nature of the text of the Odyssey before 300 BC is uncertain. So for 400 years of one of the most famous pieces of literature in the Greek language and in the Western world, Homer's Odyssey, there is no manuscript evidence for 400 years and no complete manuscript evidence for almost two millennia. Now you compare that to the New Testament manuscript evidence and it's an absolute wealth, a treasure trove of evidence. So this is why Ehrman can say, and it's very misleading, he will say there are more variances, more variations in the manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. And that is actually true. It's true because there are so many manuscripts. When you have tens of thousands of manuscripts, you only have to have dozens of words and each one here or there and suddenly you have, voila, a great Stunning claim, which is actually much, much less than it sounds. Here's a second reason to trust the Greek New Testament we have. The reliability of textual criticism. There's a scholar named Daniel Wallace. He's a professor of New Testament studies at Dallas. He's the executive director of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. He is the author of every seminary student's best friend, Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics. It's a page turner. He does this exercise at churches and retreats. It's called the Gospel According to Snoopy. What he does at universities and churches and other settings for the last three or four decades is he, he trains people on the spot, like you, to be textual critics. And what he does is he gives just a very short written statement, something about the Gospel and Snoopy, and it's a 50-word document and in this 50-word document, he will put it through six generations of scribes. So designate, now you're going to copy the manuscript, and you're going to copy the manuscript, and you're going to copy the manuscript. And he has them deliberately make certain mistakes 
in the manuscript. So maybe they'll drop out a word, they'll repeat a word, they'll move a letter here, they'll forget a sentence, they'll add something else. He has them make intentional and perhaps they make unintentional mistakes. The results are that by the time it's gone through this process, the copies are significantly worse off than any New Testament manuscripts. And it's only a 50-word document, and there are many more mistakes. And then he has the rest of the folks, just people who are hearing about this for the first time, get together with the manuscript evidence around them and try to come up with the original. and Try to piece together, well, where did this come from and why is this different than here They don't have all the manuscripts. In fact, he intentionally destroys some of them. So they have to deal with only a partial record. And after two hours of this exercise, they have to present the original manuscript as best as they can. And he says, having done this at churches and schools over 50 times over the years, his amateur scholars have never been off by more than three words. And that was only once. And he says, very often the group is entirely correct. Just amateurs simply using common sense and the law of non-contradiction to try to piece together this manuscript tradition. So there is reason to trust the best minds with a wealth of manuscript evidence have before us a very reliable Greek New Testament. And here's the third reason we can trust the Greek New Testament and the English versions we have based on it. No important doctrine is affected by these differences. Yes, Ehrman says there are more variants than there are words in the New Testament. There are 138,162 words in the New Testament, and there are more variants than that, but that's because there are tens of thousands of manuscripts. And if you were to look at those variations, some of you may be thinking, oh my, is it like this, the woman caught in adultery, just... Are there stories that are missing in some man? No, this is here because this is about the most famous and noteworthy of those differences. Far and away, most of the variations have to do with spelling. So all of your English teachers can just take, okay, and moms and dads, all right, even happy to happen with copyists and the Bible. There's a thing in Greek called the movable new. It's like an in, and some words end in it and some don't. So you have that. You have different variations on names. You have uh, 70 to 80% are spelling variants that would never even show up in a translation. There are other insignificant variations like the use of the definite article with a proper name. We don't speak of the Mary and the Kevin, unless you're sort of full of yourself, but they would often include the definite article and sometimes they wouldn't. Those are the sort of differences. 99% of the variations are things like this that you would never even see showing up in an English translation. And then there are obvious mistakes, repeating a word, copying the previous line again, conflating two columns of Luke's genealogy is one famous manuscript, has it so that almost everyone has the wrong father. Those things would be very easy to spot. Even Ehrman, in his earlier work, admitted that the scribes copying the text of the Bible were very careful and quite good. Sometimes they made intentional changes. In a famous text called the Codex Vaticanus, A scribe changed a corrected reading back to the wrong, uncorrected reading, and another scribe changed it back and wrote in the margin, 
Fool and knave, can't you leave the old reading alone? So the scribes took this very seriously. We should not think they were just willy-nilly, but this was a trade. These were the finest scholars of their day to be trained in copying manuscripts, preserving the text of the Bible. So we have every reason to trust our Bibles. There's a story told about Bruce Metzger. You may not have ever heard of his name, but he is really the, the, the father of this science of textual criticism. He died and went with the Lord a number of years ago. And what's significant about Bruce Metzger is he was a mentor to Bart Ehrman. Metzger was also a brilliant, humble, sincere Christian. I met him once years ago when I was in college and found him to be just that. He was a mentor to Bart Ehrman. In fact, you can still get a copy of a book they wrote on textual criticism together. In the edition of that book that I mentioned earlier, Misquoting Jesus is in fact dedicated to his doctor father, Bruce Metzger. Well, here's what Metzger said in 1997 in an interview with Lee Strobel when he was asked if scholarship has diluted your faith. So this is the man who taught Ehrman. He says, on the contrary, it has built it. I have asked questions all my life. I have dug into the text. I have studied this thoroughly. And today I know with confidence that my trust in Jesus has been very well placed, very well placed. To give you another quotation from Sir Frederick Kenyon, former director of the British Museum, he says, quote, the interval between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence is so small as to be negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. So you ought to confidently read this breathed out book, your English translation based on the Greek and the Hebrew text, which has been carefully put together from many manuscripts, which we can be confident give us the words of the very originals which God has inspired. Which brings us back in our closing moments to John chapter 8. It is a justly famous text. It may be one of your favorite stories, and there is much to love here. Notice first that Jesus does not water down the standard. When the woman is put before him as having committed adultery, he doesn't say, well, she's an adulterer, but it was a consenting relationship, and who are we to judge? No, he does not act as if what she did was fine. In fact, he upholds God's word and his standard of purity and righteousness. He does not simply dismiss the charge as irrelevant. But then notice, though he does not water down the standard, he does not condemn the woman. Now, there's a lot going on here, more than you may have realized before. The statute in question that they're referring to is from Deuteronomy 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both, notice that, both, man and woman, shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. It goes on, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. That's the Old Testament provision that the scribes and Pharisees are referring to. 
it's doubtful that this stoning of adulterers happened very often or at all. Certainly not in the first century. You have to remember that the Jews did not have the right of capital punishment. It was the Romans who had to crucify Jesus. The Jews did not have the right to execute capital punishment on their own. And most likely people did not have the stomach for it. And if you think about it, it is often hard to catch people in the very act of adultery. Now often... We see this story played out in our mind's eye or perhaps on some video rendition of it as if the scribes and the Pharisees were bloodthirsty wanting to kill this helpless woman. And that may or may not have been the case. But notice in the text, the woman is clearly not their prey. Jesus is. It says in verse 6, they brought her before him in order to test him. It was a trap. So whether they, if the story is true, had their heart intent on seeing her pummeled with stones is really beside the point and really doesn't suggest that they did. Rather, their reason for bringing her to Jesus is to get Jesus in trouble. Because in their mind, they're surely thinking... Jesus, this great teacher of mercy, who's a friend of tax collectors and sinners, he is not going to stone this woman. But if he doesn't, then he's violating the law of Moses. Uh Aha. So what are you going to do, Jesus? Are you going to disagree with the law of Moses? Or let's see you, this great teacher of mercy, you pick up the stone, you throw it at her, and in doing so, you're going to run afoul of the Romans. Well, Jesus also knows the Old Testament. And when he asks the question, or rather makes the statement in verse 7, let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone at her, that too is an allusion to the text in Deuteronomy. You can look it up, Deuteronomy 13.9 and Deuteronomy 17.7, where it states that the one who bears witness against the guilty party must be the first person to throw the stone. That's what the law of Moses required. If you are going to bring a judgment, an allegation against this person, you, one, you must not have been guilty of it yourself because you were just a witness of it, not a a perpetrator in it. And two, you must have eyewitness testimony to there pick up the stone and say, I was the witness and I will throw the first stone. So Jesus finds a way out of their trap. Or he doesn't say, law of Moses, we don't care about the law of Moses. But what he does is to bring the rest of the law of Moses to bear upon the situation and upon their consciences. What he's asking is really twofold. Number one, who saw this? Because it's the witness who is the first to cast the stone. Now you have drug her up saying she was caught in the act, but who here? has witnessed it. And two, he's asking the relevant question, who here is also innocent of this sin? Now, he's not suggesting that that the courts have no place to judge people or there's no place to issue reproof for sin. But remember the striking piece of evidence here, or rather the lack of evidence. Where is the man? Well, he's nowhere to be found. If there was a witness, really somebody caught her in the act. Now, it's not to doubt that it happened and somewhere down the line, but 
this crowd here, these scribes and Pharisees, if they had witnessed it themselves, then where's the man? Where has he gone? No, no, no. Jesus is perfectly puncturing their pretension. They are not interested in justice. If they're so interested in justice, then which of them have borne witness to this great sin? And if they have, which of them is entirely free from it themselves? And so famously, they walk away. He doesn't water down the standard. He doesn't condemn the woman, and he doesn't condone the sin either. The world, of course, says, you're free to go. The Bible says, you're free to go and be changed. Remember, the cry in Exodus was not just let my people go, but let my people go into the wilderness that they may serve me and worship the living God. He does not condemn her, but he does not condone the sin. Go and sin no more. Now, I would certainly like to believe and think there's no reason that it couldn't have been a true story. But whether it happened or not, we have ample evidence in the rest of Scripture that the very truths set forth in this story can be pressed home upon our hearts. And so, would you turn as we close to Romans chapter 8. Well, I would not preach John 8, the woman caught in adultery with all of the force of Scripture. Would use it as a likely example of something that happened. It's attested in other documents in church history as a story that has resonance, though we cannot know for sure. But if you love the truth that is there in the text... I want you to have absolute confidence that you do not need that story to have all that that story tells us. It's all over the scripture and here as clear as anywhere, Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We see here the same beautiful picture that you have grown to love in the woman caught in adultery. The same beautiful picture gospel picture painted by the Apostle Paul in three steps. Number one, we are not condemned. When we are in Christ, our sins are washed away. We are forgiven. And God himself will not pick up the stone to hurl at us. We are not condemned and we are not in chains. That's what Romans teaches us. We have been set free in Christ Jesus, free not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin, so that in Christ we are not condemned, in Christ we are not in chains, and here's the third step of the gospel, you must not lose it, we are not the same. 
Isn't that the story of the woman caught in adultery? And isn't that the picture of the gospel here in Romans chapter 8? No condemnation in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free. God has done what you could not do in the flesh in order that the law would be fulfilled in us and that we might walk not according to the flesh but to the spirit. That's the story that we need. That's the story that we love. That's the story written on every page in the scriptures that we are not condemned, that we are not in chains, and that, praise God, in Christ, we are not the same. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we prayed moments ago, so we pray again that we might leave this place more confident that we can trust this book your inerrant word breathed out from your very lips. And that by your providential superintendence, we can trust the Greek and the Hebrew, and we can trust the scholars who have worked to bring it to us in a language that we can understand. And so we can open this book and read it every morning and hear it preached every Sunday and know that you are speaking to us. Give us great confidence in this book and give us great assurance in your mercy. The great marvelous grace of our loving Savior who forgives us and sets us free and changes us forever. In his name we pray, amen.